Welcome to CFO Insights, the leading podcast for finance professionals in disruptive tech, brought to you by the Startup CFO community. I'm Guy Hutchinson, and I'm the host of the podcast, as well as being a tech CFO. In this episode, we're going to talk to Anthony Denon, an investor running the Cocoa Fund and focusing on fintech. Anthony takes us through his investment thesis that fintech is everything, and why CFO Tech is now presenting exciting opportunities for VCs. For the CFOs in our community, he shares some remarkable tips on identifying a great tech business to work with, as well as laying down red flags that VCs watch out for when appraising founders. Introducing our new podcast sponsor, Vertice, founded in the UK by serial entrepreneurs and brothers Eldar and Roy Tuvi. Vertice is a technology company designed to help startups and scale-ups manage their SaaS and cloud spend. To find out how to streamline your renewals and get visibility on your tech stack, and most importantly, save up to 25% on your SaaS and cloud spend, visit vertice.one and click Start Saving. And best of all, our listeners qualify for a 10% discount off the cloud and SaaS bundle. Just enter CFO Insights Podcast in the Where Did You Hear About Us field. Anthony, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And thank you to CFO Insights and the CFO Startup community as well. Yeah, look, um, we had a great chat a couple of months back. Uh, you were introed by Ian Sutherland, who's at Tide. Uh, he's been a CFO there for the last five or so years. Uh, great guy, great business. Uh, and he wanted to get you and I connected because you were one of the late seed investors at Tide. And Tide is a, a great UK success story in that particular part of fintech. Uh, and so we had a great chat. And it made me realize that a lot of the investments that you're making are just so relevant for tech CFOs. Um, some really nice overlap from uh, the world of fintech and the world of the CFO tech stack and also the kind of things that CFOs will be using as we go forwards to completely revolutionize how they run their finance teams. No, absolutely. And uh, thank you again for having me. So let me start with a bit of a backstory. Um, I'm originally Greek. I was born and raised in Athens and actually came to the UK to study in Cambridge and transitioned to London and now almost 14 years in, in London. Um, um, I actually started my career as an operator in fintech. And I kid you not, it's not like I had an obsession to be in fintech. I think no one probably did back in 2012. They're more skeptical than, than actually excited. Uh, it was that time. But actually, I had a small, uh, short internship at a consulting firm, and it was definitely not for me. And that pushed me to kind of try to put application into what I had learned with econometrics. So that got me into... Uh, operating in an invoice financing company, actually building credit risk models and decisioning engines, which got me into fintech and then got me into venture, essentially. So I switched to the dark side two and a half years after, and I've been now in VC for the past nine and a half years, uh, predominantly investing in what I've called fintech is everything. So the notion of fintech being a horizontal, not a vertical that touches on all other markets. Um, I've had the privilege to be part of different firms over time, initially with Anthem Group and with Speedy Invest, having a venture partner role with Hedda Sophia as well, just before I went on to create my own fund. Um, and I've actually uh, been very excited to support a bunch of different entrepreneurs that have done amazing things in fintech. Um, you know, the first deal I was heavily involved in was uh, doing the seed of Trulair, uh, which is an open banking um, company, uh, Francesco and Luca, who are awesome. I went on to uh, lead the pre-seed of Primer, which is in the commerce and payments automation enablement space. And the guys are 
growing quite fast and super excited about that. Uh, I went on to kind of be the co-invest alongside QED and with Stefan at Speed Invest doing the Seed of Way Flyer. Um, you know, Jack and Eden are awesome and they're now one of the top players in the e-commerce financing space. And more recently, actually, I ended up doing the seed alongside our friends at Index into a company called Atlar. Joel, Joel and Johannes were amazing and uh, building in payment operations space, which I know you know very well as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we've we've been uh, super pleased working closely with Joel and, and the team at Atlar. Uh, it's a great product. We ran a superb in-person event in London with them recently. Uh, so that was great fun. Had a, <clears throat> a really good talk and really good roundtable session. So, yeah, some, some fantastic teams there. And we know the guys at Wayflower as well, actually. And, uh, yeah, they've, they've done incredibly well. I guess one of the thought processes that we had about us uh, having this conversation on the podcast was – there's something in the way that you invest, particularly because it's relatively early on, and particularly because it's this fintech is everything space, right? Uh, that, that resembles the thought process that a CFO needs to have when they join their new company. Because a, a lot of CFOs, a lot of FTs are going to join shortly after an A round where things are not completely fully formed, but there are some very strong indications about where the business will go in the end. Uh, and so I'm just really interested to sort of uncover what we can learn, how CFOs can learn a little bit from seed investors about how they think about taking on their next role. Absolutely. And happy to dive in. I mean, seed investing can be tough because there's not too many parameters or let's say quantitative data to hook up into, as, as you just mentioned. And um, but I'm very happy to tell you a bit more about how I go about it as a process. I mean, it's also many times more emotional than rational. And so the first thing I'll say, and something that I've balanced over time is what actually makes me drop everything to work on a one in a thousand company tends to be initially an emotional trigger. So, you know, I have a conversation with a founder and I get so excited about what they're doing and their energy and their passion that makes me to actually drop everything else I'm doing, right? So the initial trigger, trigger tends to be emotional. Now, what I've learned over time is that having a process after that so that you can rationally and relatively objectively assess what you have in front of you, and we will dive into more of that in a second, is very important, right? And, and that tends to be, um, you know, that tends to be more systems thinking. Um, it tends to be, you know, diving into many different variables that we will talk about. And then the actual end decision is emotional in itself, um, which is also very interesting. Actually, Anthony, one thing there that a lot of CFOs will be thinking is that emotional versus rational piece. Uh, it would be worth expanding on that because I think when you meet a founder and you learn about an opportunity, it's really easy to come away from that meeting, even as a CFO, quite emotionally excited about what it could be. Uh, but you don't want that emotional position to become a bias. And as you analyze the details, you look for evidence of product market fit, begin to meet maybe the broader C-suite, you're looking for evidential points, but you're not looking to reverse engineer a confirmation bias. Um, so I'm kind of curious how you would go about making sure that you don't end up feeling emotionally excited and then everything else is a confirmation bias. 
Now, this is such a good point. Um, and it's usually the problem you get when you start growing as a VC in the early days. You start having confirmation bias and starting to overgeneralize. So you're right. The emotional trigger is the excitement, which makes me do the work. But then what I do is I dive into process, right? And evaluating the different parameters of a company and of what I have in front of me, actually with a lens of trying to prove me wrong, right? So I got excited, but like, why did I get excited? Like, there's all these things that might be challenges. Let's go and find all the challenges of this company. So yes, I go about evaluating a team. Let, yes, I go about like looking at the nature of the opportunity, right? The upside potential, the tailwinds, the why now, the competition. Yes, I try to understand, you know, do they have a right to win? It might be an edge, a unique insight, a distribution angle. It might be just um, humongous tailwinds and being early movers. But in the end of the day, it's also the lens by which I try to do that, right? So I get emotionally excited to do the work. I try to do the work and we can go a bit deeper into the team side because I think that's the least, um, it, it, it's less easy for that to be, uh, to be actually expanded on and then after having done all that work, the end decision will be actually a gut feel decision because, and that's the difficult part because at the seed stage, it's not going to be like inputs equal output and output says there's product market fit. It will be, I have all these signs that are very positive and there's all these risks, but net net, I feel really good about this opportunity. But you will have had to go through, you know, assessing the team and founders. And we can talk about some of those red flags in a second, right? Assessing yeah. the wider opportunity yeah. and the likes. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's fascinating. But, the, but that implies that you can split yourself into two personas, right? The one that is mm. excited by the emotional um, element of, of, of what this product can be and what the team could actually deliver. And then the second persona is the person who's doing, I think I've heard other VCs call it the pre-mortem, the things that you yeah. like, like why, why does this fail in the end? Uh, and the two personas then fight it out <laughs> to decide whether you would actually invest or not. Absolutely. And uh, actually, uh, Sequoia actually does another thing, the prelude as well, right? So, so uh, not the prelude, sorry, the pre-parade. Um, so what can this become if everything goes right? What, what did that fail if it were to fail, right? And so I think doing both of those exercises are really helpful because it measures the upside potential if you're taking that risk um, and also kind of countermeasures to understand what are the biggest challenges. Um, yeah, on the yeah, it's a really interesting process. And, and as you've hinted at earlier, uh, it, it's the founder piece. It's unpicking the makeup of the founder that's probably the strongest leading indicator at this stage. Right. That's all you can hook into in the end, right? It's like um, quality of execution. And also, if you think about it, when there's so many challenges, there's so many uncontrollables, the only thing that you can control for, or at least you can assess, is like the quality of the execution. Um, I would say that to expand a bit more on that, there's a couple of things that I look out for particularly. The first one is an obsession, right? Is the founder or the founders obsessed about, you know, the company they're building, the pain point they're solving, the opportunity and space they're in? Maybe they experienced the pain point firsthand in a previous job. Maybe it's a personal thing for them, right? Because there's all these factors that are going to be actually collaborating towards, you know, you failing and you want to have that grit that takes you all the way. The second is the underlying motivation. You know, why are they building? There's so many ways in making an impact in the world 
you know, being an entrepreneur and a founder is very, very hard, right? So what is the why, right? Are you motivated by money, by making an impact? Have you always been an entrepreneurial family? And so it's been kind of a personal thing for you that that's what success looks like. Um, a chip on the shoulder, right? A chip on the shoulder. Many times when you look back in the past of these founders, is something that's happened through their life um, that actually has created this kind of endless energy of like, I need to go faster and better and never stop. Because uh, grit is one of the, the most uh, important predictors in the early stages and whether they're going to make it to the other side, to Series A. Uh, and the last point I will say, um, because I tend to, especially in the current environment in Europe, where you've had uh, a cycle of maturity in the ecosystem and a lot of senior operators that climbed up to be heads of uh, products, engineering, commercial, or even C-suite end up founding new companies. It's this argument or, yes, they might have been phenomenal operators before. So when you go and reference them in their previous jobs, they might reference, uh, the references might come out to be stellar, but do they have a capacity to be a founder? That's harder to assess, but it is something that I'm obsessing myself about a lot these days. And usually it's a combination of looking into the roles they had before, right? Um, were they a bit of a Swiss army knife and having their pulse everywhere and doing a bit of special projects here and optimizing on processes and creating new projects? And the second is what you're trying to assess is their capacity to be creative, right? Because I think the best founders um, are the ones that actually not only, let's say, have the unique insight and execute well, but they're creative enough to morph the opportunity to something even larger that they haven't thought of. So I think this is a way of thinking about founders from an upside potential perspective. I'm very happy to actually touch into some of the, let's say, red flags or signals, because that's also a very important part of the process. Before we dive in on the red flags, there's, there's a couple of things. So, so that's a really multifaceted picture of what a great founder looks like. And the, the one thing you mentioned twice, actually, so uh, it's really interesting to ask a bit more about it, is grit, right? So uh, I've done more than 15 years in VC-backed tech businesses. And actually, really, really, it's only the last five years that people talked a bit more about grit, because grit implies uh, somebody who can grind things out even when it's super hard, that perhaps has some sort of backstories around um, stuff that didn't go to plan. Uh, and so I'm kind of interested, right, when you're assessing for grit, how are, how are you going about doing that? Yeah, I mean, it's. Uh, I, I wish I had the number one, one thing that actually gives you that, because I would be sipping pina colada somewhere instead of um, trying to find the next <laughs> company. But it's, it's a tough one. I think in periods of what they say wartime CEOs, it's easier to, to see that, right, and how, how they act. But you can look at past, well, we can look at this company and it will have already had had some challenges, right? And many times even getting to see this tough from a money perspective, right? Like, and from being resource constrained and from having to kind of get to somewhere to become exciting to investors. But usually you can actually look at their past experience and work, right? And you can see from elements of what they've been doing in the past uh, and reference and understand what have been some of the challenges how they come into overcoming them but yeah it, it's not very easy to do so right i do yeah. think though it can be thought of it's not an output variable but it can be thought of as an output variable where if you blend um uh, obsession with motivation and a chip on the shoulder together there's kind of good ingredients 
that can lead towards like grit, right? Because this person is not going to stop. This person needs to make a debt. This person is obsessed about solving this problem. And so you could also think of grit as an output variable into these inputs potentially, right? Yeah, yeah, I can see that. So, so it's really, you know, if I was a CFO and I was meeting a founder and I was thinking about whether this thing was my next um, opportunity to jump on, uh, I'm kind of looking for something to come out of the storytelling. I'm looking for things to be uh, challenging and for them to be really transparent about that and to explain how they kind of like broke down the barriers and things like this. Yeah, you can understand exactly that. Like, you know, how are they talking about the vision? Why are they doing this? Um, you can see their passion. You can see the depth in which um, they actually talk about this business, right? Um, it's these types of things that tend to be telling, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And 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 also kind of fun to explore as well, to be honest. Because <laughs> there's like, there's, there's something that's more uh, engaging about a story with more bumps with some bumps in the road uh, than a story where it was all plain sailing. And then you hinted at the red flags, right? So I think, you know, we're all curious how to spot something that that might not be worth your money or our time. Like, so what, what's the classical um, things you've got to be looking out for? And what I was thinking is maybe we can talk about yellow flags, right? Which is essentially, because nothing's too binary, but there yeah. are signs that you should be... Um, digging into elements more deeply right so it's, it's a bit about like are there any lead indicators that might be skeletons in the closet kind of thing um and you know the first thing i was thinking about is like early co-founder departure because if it's a seed company which could be like a one two maybe two and a half three years uh, of existence company having a founder leave early is definitely an area to double click on right no doesn't mean that by itself it's a red flag but in itself, was there a reason? Is, does this mean that the current founder is, is, is dysfunctional in some respects, right? Or was it, um, was it just that this uh, relationship didn't work well? And actually, what has the current founder done since, right? Usually you get uh, two co-founders tend to be complementary. So if you lose one, what has the founder that's still there done to counteract that, right? Have they, let's say they lost the technical co-founder, you know, have they hired a very strong uh, technical person that they've known uh, from the past? So kind of assessing the decisions they have to counteract that is important. So I would look out for that, right? Has there been any early co-founder departure? What was the story behind it? And how has the existing founder uh, acted since to patch for the deficiencies from losing a core part of the capability of the co-founder? Another thing I would say is uh, material churn. Now there's two types of churn. I think customer churn is too early to talk about and employee churn, right? So if you have turnover that is quite high, quite fast, it might be for two reasons. One is like because this founder does not necessarily nurture green culture and things in the long term or is not kind of hiring really well, or uh, it might be um, that basically there is something wrong in this business in itself. And so you'd want to understand, like, what is it that makes this material churn? Um, you, there is always the benefit of the doubt, especially for first-time founders, that, you know, they're learning fast and they're iterating fast. And the first layer hires they made were the wrong ones. And they learn from that quite quickly. So you want to go a layer deeper. But if you do see, obviously, signs that, you know, it's a two-year-old or a year-and-a-half-old company and they've had a big proportion of their employees kind of turnover, then that's something to double click on. The the other thing I would say is a couple of things that are related to the cap table, 
or to the, the shareholding of the company. Um, one is basically founder dilution. When you see companies that are seed stage that have already given a big proportion, the founders have already given a big proportion of their percentage ownership, it's something to double click on, right? At this stage, it's not rare to see you know, 20, maybe 30% of the company given outside if there's been a pre-seed round before, let's say an angel round, or they had done some sort of seed round and this is a late seed round. But I think anything above that is tough. And why is it tough? Because if you think about it, and we're talking about venture-backable companies, these companies are going to have subsequent fundraisers, right? Series A, B, C, D. And you really want those founders to be heavily incentivized with skin in the game, even at Series C. So... The more they've given up front, the harder that is uh, at scale, and the more actually that can create fundraise risk. Because when the companies go out to raise their Series A, for example, if they've given 40% of the company or 50% of the company, you know, the potential Series A investors will flag that. Now, there are ways of restructuring that, but that puts the bar higher into whether that Series A investor wants to do the work to get there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so from members of our group that I've spoken to the last couple of years, CFOs looking to take on their new role are nearly always asking to have sight of the cap table now, like certainly the more experienced people. So there's a lesson there. As for employee churn and turnover, I think to identify it is an important thing to touch on, which is you can just go and do like, you know, LinkedIn advanced searches, right? And so you can look at this company, um, you know, have they had a lot of employees that used to be part of this company relative to the time it's been in operation. If it's been around for a year, year and a half, and it's had 10 employees and it's had like four of them or five of them already leave, I mean, it's already an indicator, I would argue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. LinkedIn um, tends to give a bit of a sense for those things, isn't it? It's very, uh, it's a very helpful tool and something you can do nice and quickly. So the way I think about the world of fintech is in three different buckets, and then there's sub-buckets within each. Um, so there's core fintech, which tends to be the industry sub-vertical. So think about retail banking and consumer finance, business and corporate banking, payments, insurance and risk management, capital markets and trading and wealth and asset management. And these are kind of the core traditional ways of thinking about fintech. And usually the opportunities are evenly distributed at times, depending on. And it's funny that many times um, these happen in clusters. Uh, the second uh, is what I call basically... Um, Vertical fintech or fintech as an enabler, which is basically the notion of fintech being or financial services being a horizontal, not a vertical that touches on all other markets, right? So financial services is a support function of all other markets. And it's about looking at either software and bundling kind of fintech within, but generally um, bundling fintech within specific markets. So think about logistics and trade finance or health and insurance. Uh, solar and financing, or for example, a construction management operating system and then layering on uh, billing and working capital financing and, and insurance within that. So that's what I call kind of FinTech as an enabler. Um, and then the last bucket is what I call uh, software for finance or SaaS for finance. Um, and that has two, let's say, subcategories. Uh, one is um, basically software for the CFO stack, the treasury management uh, systems, the uh, strategic finance, and many more, which I'm sure you're very much attested to and a, a core part of the discussion today. And the other is software that sells to banks, which can either be 
software used by banks directly within financial services. So think about core banking software, but can also include uh, software that has a very a specific, let's say, go-to-market with banking that has a reason for it to be very nuanced. So you know, if there's an AI copiler for customer support um, that focuses on the banking sector for the reason of compliance, for example, um, just because their go-to-market tends to be banks, and that's where a lot of my value lies and being able to diligence, that's also another bucket that I, I look into. So these are the three buckets, I'd say. I do think that the opportunities are unevenly distributed at times and there's hype in different subcategories, let's say, and things happen in clusters many times, which is quite funny. Um, but um, usually I'm guided bottom up, right? I just follow where the best operators or founders are building. And so it's easier for me to tell you what are kind of some of the last um, investments I've made or companies I've seen that have been exciting versus actually telling you like, you know, what, what are I think areas that are, most exciting yeah 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 i can see that so so before we dive into uh talking through a few of the examples there was one thing that i'm really keen to uh expand upon if we can so you had mentioned earlier that and i think the example was uh fintech meets healthcare doing doing some big things in the us uh struggling a little bit in europe where you've got this fragmented market and and actually that that's one of the european tendencies is that the different geographical or you know territorial markets often have quite big differences so for example in the uk you've got a small number of very large banks and then you go to germany and you've got a very large number of small regional banks and that fundamentally has an impact on the way that certain businesses such as atla or even tide would go about thinking about expanding uh how is how is the european versus us sort of conundrum that that expansive footprint? How's that changed how you think about certain investments? It's a great question. Um, I'll say two things to start. One is that the frame of the opportunity matters. So you can build a local player that can be a massive business, right? So if you think about cross-border payments, for example, just looking at Africa, like Central Africa, for example, is a huge enough market. So the first frame is, what are we talking about here? The more software and SaaS something is, the more it's a winner takes most market and the more you need to make an argument for, um, you know, kind of pan-Europe or even global play. What is really great with FinTech is that it's on average not a winner takes all markets, right? You, you can actually replicate success stories in different geographies and, um, and actually adapt their business model. So the first thing is the frame, right? The more... You need this to be a pan-Europe success story or the value accrues by being across the different countries, the, the, the better, the larger, right? You have many companies like Periplane or Conto. Conto is a huge, um, you know, like it's like Tide, right? It's a, a business neobank and they're now present in many markets in Europe, but they, they became a billion-dollar company before they even had expanded quite meaningfully outside of France because in itself, it's quite a huge market, Right. So I think that's the first frame when I look at an opportunity. Um, the more it's like infrastructure and software, um, the more you need to think about it on a pan-Europe scale and you need to make an argument for it. But still, as venture investors, because for us, the sky is the limit, we really do like to understand, even for those businesses that can be a bit more local, do they have an opportunity to potentially expand? And the, the more hard that is, the less attractive it could be or it's just another let's say data point for 
for a challenge um, of, of why this company might not become as as big. The other thing is that you know this cross border or let's say that the European fragmentation can be an opportunity, right? You mentioned Atlar, you know, in Europe, in, in sorry, in the US, you have a different nature of the problem, right? With companies like Modern Treasury, where they're trying to relieve and automate ACH, right? This is a different problem, but they don't have the same issue of a fragmented market, right? With Atlar, you know, you can actually switch that complexity to an opportunity, right? If a company in Europe has more than two jurisdictions by itself, like the opportunity of actually being able to unify and reconcile payments operations becomes quite essential, right? So there is this opportunity to focus from the get-go on being pan-European, connecting with all the different banks commercially um, across Europe and being able to offer more value uh, to more companies, right? Then, for example, even in the US, you could. So the second argument I'd make is that that fragmentation can be turned into an opportunity. It's defensibility. It can be hard, hard to build up front, but if you do build it, then there's more value to be accrued after. That's interesting. And and I guess at some level, uh, if there are some barriers because the market is a little bit fragmented, uh, it's more likely that a European player finds the way to overcome those and to expand into a whole bunch of European markets rather than a US player sort of turning up thinking it's a sort of cookie cutter solution uh, when in fact it's it, it's far from that with lots of regional differences. One last thing I want to say, which is adjacent to the point of fragmentation, it's more focused on how... Um, Fintech is actually not necessarily a winner takes most market. Um, a last bucket that we didn't talk about much, um, it, which I sometimes look at, is what I call Fintech as a business model. So essentially, if you're a B2B marketplace or if you're a software provider, um, you can essentially embed Fintech to start monetizing it. So imagine um, Payfac as a service, right? You can monetize your payments if you are a, let's say, B2B marketplace, or you can bundle working capital within, you know, your buyers and sellers. Um, you can, you know, maybe insure some of the items that are being sold at the point of selling. So one thing that Fintech has done um, is going into vertical SaaS, and vertical software that many times had been challenged on their upside potential, it's made a lot of these opportunities really attractive because it expands the nature of the opportunity. When you monetize fintech, suddenly what could be a time of X can be 5X because you can make so much more money from that marketplace GMV or from that software SaaS. So that's also a very interesting thing that we're looking at and that I'm excited about. Yeah, and that and that's examples like I guess uh, some of the better known ones, maybe Klarna, where you can go on a Klarna and you can see the the sort of almost the marketplace of the e-com players that accept Klarna and things like this. It's that it's that marriage of a more conventional online business model with fintech sat very much at the center of it all. Yeah, uh, I mean, Klarna is uh, another angle to a similar outcome, right? It's very hard to pull off what Klarna has done, which is you start with fintech and then you close the loop with a consumer. Um, and that's, I think, also very powerful. And as you said, it's very similar to exactly what I just, I just said, because you end up in, uh, basically bundling a marketplace or a commerce platform within your financial services ecosystem or your, your, your initial point solution, uh, which is also very, very exciting. More hard to pull off, but very exciting. <laughs>
very interesting and yeah it's amazing how how well those guys have done and and and, and does does show you that you know Europe's going to really produce some fintech players at scale uh so on that topic actually let, let's 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 pick a couple of other investments you've made uh fairly recently and just sort of like talk through those and see how they can inform the thinking of CFOs about the, the the way that the world is going and the kind of tooling they'll be using in the future. Absolutely. So I was thinking I'll talk about um, Pivot first. Pivot is a company founded by three co-founders. Um, it's Marc-Antoine Lacroix, who was before the CTO and CPO of Conto. It's uh, Romain uh, Libor, who used to be uh, the C COO, CMO's chief everything officer for Swile. Um, and Estelle Julie, who is amazing, has had expertise in kind of like automation and tech um, and quite uh, quite a unique experience in workflow automation as well. And they're building in the space of indirect procurement workflow and workflow automation, um, targeting either scale-up companies or mid-market uh, at the core. Uh, and think about the fact that uh, there is a huge tailwind in this space because all these companies that have scaled up or the mid-market itself, you know, beyond a certain level, you need certain, let's say, procurement procedures to approve the expenses of your employees, right? And we're talking at about, uh, about an environment where, um, you know, all these companies have been decentralizing spending to their employees, right? As a retention tool, as an empowerment tool over the past years, especially in the bull market we had. But now a lot of these companies are under more and more pressure to, uh, to grow towards profitability and or generally to tighten their cost base. Um, and so Pivot comes in and tells you, well, I can integrate with all of your systems. Um, you know, your IT, your procurement, your finance, um, and I can give a very easy uh, procure to pay and intake form for your employees, um, optimizing the process, making it super easy, automating it and giving control back to the finance team and the procurement team. Um, essentially, the end game is um, to go where Coupa is and potentially even be the new Coupa, right? And go all the way down the stack. But that's the entry point. So super excited about this one. Uh, which we actually end up investing with uh, back in uh, June, and very excited about how how they've been progressing uh, since. Another company uh, that I think could be interesting uh, mentioning is a company called Hyperline. Hyperline uh, was founded by a founder called Lucas Bedou, who's uh, used to be the VP Engineering at Spendesk, which you may very much might know, given it's also in the CFO suite space, uh, and he actually. Uh, saw a pain point that himself had to uh, to to build, which was billing, right? Billing engines, billing software tend to be very rigid, at least the first wave of billing software, call them charge bees or Zuoras. Um, and he had to actually manage to, to, to build an engine that intakes more complexity when it comes to pricing and quoting. And, uh, uh, and he had to actually build a lot of that himself and have engineers maintain that. Now, if you look at the space out there, you know, you have two sides of the pendulum. You have the stripes of the world offering Stripe for billing, which tends to be a relatively simple product that still needs 48 hours to maybe five days to actually onboard. And on the other hand, you have, as we talked about, Charge B and Zuora, which tends to be quite rigid version, you know, 1.0 of, of what's happened in the space. And so what Hyperline is doing is essentially breaking any parameter 
in the billing um, in, in, into it being a super flexible product that you can integrate in like 40 minutes uh, that integrates with your existing stack and that gives you almost like a no-code workflow builder where you can create and tailor any pricing and also generate billing. That's the entry point. Now, beyond that, they're looking to go into other very interesting spaces because if you think about the data you can have, you can start optimizing dynamically on pricing. You can start doing many other really cool things. So we, we did an angel round um, into Hyperline and then Index Ventures ended up leading their, their kind of next rounds, which we're very excited about. Yeah, they sound like fantastic investments, Anthony. Uh, very interested in both of them. There's uh, a lot of CFOs that end up with that project on finding the right billing engine plumbing it in, making sure it's meeting your current needs and your future needs for the business. It's a hard project to run. Uh, and actually the example with Pivot also excellent, I feel. Um, as a business goes into scale up, you typically need to enhance the controls environment, uh, often quite significantly if you're looking to do a big exit or to IPO perhaps in a few years time. And that sort of procure through to pay challenge is never loved by people outside of finance uh, and striking the balance between uh, the right levels of controls that you can evidence when you're audited, for example, um, versus something that the rank and file employees are comfortable living with as part of their day to day. That's uh, a tough one, right? And I think a pivot could make a big dent there. Uh, it's going to be wildly popular. Um, so yeah, super, super interesting investments. Anthony, look, we could talk uh, all day about these things. It's super interesting, really enjoying this. And uh, there's so many fantastic CFO lessons here. Uh, we should probably end up on um, a little kind of whirlwind of what you're doing right now, um, the funds that you are deploying from right now and your future activities uh, and give people a sense as to where it's all going. Absolutely. And thank you for the discussion. I've also super enjoyed that. And having validation from people like you that you seem, see these companies as being very exciting and interesting is actually the absolute validation, right? Because it's all about the people on the ground that understand these things. So thank you for saying that. Uh, as for um, me, so I've been for the past two years uh, deploying or investing in what has been a COCOA, which I've co-founded uh, back two and a half years ago. Um, and this is an angel fund backed by tech founders. So essentially, we're a small fund um, that we invest like an angel uh, and collaborate with the rest of the VCs at kind of round number one or pre-seed and seed uh, across Europe. And what's next is, you know, as this fund cycle is coming to, to an end, because we still have uh, not so much to deploy, I'm building towards my next fund, uh, which I'm hoping to be, you know, the next brand or firm to last. I'm looking to build a, com a fund called ReRail, which is essentially short for re-engineering the financial rails, doubling down on that fintech is everything theme and continuing on that strategy we've had with uh, Cocoa in some respects, which is, you know, the collaborative you know, fintech angel fund that's backed by founders, operators, and domain experts investing in some of those amazing uh, founders starting new companies uh, within that theme at pre-seed and seed, with Europe being the core, but also starting to look a bit a bit more globally as well, with a start being the US. So very excited in some respects to keep doing what I've been doing, but have a structure that is even more focused within that theme to double down into what's, I think, exciting, uh, which is the next few years in this space. That's really amazing, Anthony. We'll be um, 
looking out for news about ReRail. That sounds like an exciting outlook for the fund and uh, really cool thing to make happen. So, uh, yeah, very, very keen to hear more about that in the future. Uh, Anthony, look, I mean, this has been super interesting. We've covered so much in the last 35 minutes. It's been really uh, a great tour of the world of CFO Tech. So thank you very much for being our guest on the podcast. No, thank you so much for having me, Guy. And honestly, I do believe that communities like yours make, at least selfishly, the tech ecosystem and fintech ecosystem greater. So it's a it's a super privilege to be um, to be part of this podcast and hopefully to get to know more of you better soon. So thank you for having me. Yeah, fantastic, Ansi. I uh, appreciate your kind words about our startup CFO group. We're really pleased with how it's all gone, and uh, a bit like with your funds, there's lots more coming. You were listening to CFO Insights brought to you by Startup CFO. If you're a finance professional working in disruptive tech and would like to join our global network, visit our website, startupcfo.tech, to learn more. This podcast was part of our CFO Insights series of discussions. And if you want to learn more about the Startup CFO group, follow us on LinkedIn to learn more about our community and the upcoming events. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast.